what uh, I'm intending to do uh, just for the remaining time that I have with you, whether it's a couple of months or, or uh, quite a few months. Uh, I just would like to take a walk through the book of James. So I'm not sure how far we'll get, but let's just start and, and, and we'll see. Um, of course, uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, I'll be taking the Easter theme uh, on those days. So just very briefly about the book of James, uh, it's generally uh, agreed by those uh, really smart people, those Bible theologians and commentators, that uh, James is the brother of Jesus. That's the, his blood brother, part of his family. And that James became the leader of the Jerusalem Council. So he was a person of authority and importance and influence in the early church. James is written to Christian people, so it's very relevant for us here today. And the people that James was writing to, just for us to keep in the back of our mind, were the early Christians. These were the Jewish converts to Christianity. And remember, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible and with Acts, that Stephen was stoned to death for his faith. And after that, there came a persecution upon the church. And James is writing to the, the Christians still there in Jerusalem, but also uh, the early Christians who were scattered uh, to many different places because of that uh, early persecution. It's a very practical book. James is just wanting to say to those early Christians, this is how you live out the Christian faith. So we're going to see that. It's very practical and helpful for us as well. Now, in the first chapter, James talks about trials and temptations. And in many ways, trials and temptations can interlink and overlap, but yet they can also be quite separate. And James talks about them separately, and yet he puts them back to back. And so today, we're going to have a look at them uh, trials today, next time I'll speak about temptations. The trials James is talking about are the things that happen just because we're alive and we're in the world. It's the circumstances that come into our life that we don't expect. And then next time I speak, it's uh, about the temptation that comes from within because of our sinful desires. So anyway, let's uh, get into this and we'll have a look at uh, this first chapter. And, and of course, the text that you're following is there uh, in the corner post or, uh, of course, in your Bibles. Some years ago, uh, I had been through a difficult time. I was pastor of a church and it had been a particularly difficult year. And uh, I found myself at the end of the year sitting uh, with my family in a plane and taxiing uh, to the, or, or down the tarmac to the uh, runway where we were going to take off and uh, go on holiday. We were heading off to Queensland for a few weeks. And as I sat there taxiing on that plane, thinking about shortly I'll be pressed back in the seat and flying up into the sky, um, I, I was just feeling quite elated because I thought here on the plane, I'm not allowed to have my mobile phone on. No one can ring me. No one can knock on my door and bring me bad news. In fact, no one even knows where I am. And I felt really good. 
really safe. And then I thought, oh, and, and soon we'll be up there in the sky and heading off for holidays. And it was like all those cares and burdens had suddenly come off my shoulders, at least for a few weeks. And I actually thought to myself, this is pure joy. Escaping, pure joy. And yet, we read here in our text in James, in verse 2, James says this, Consider it pure, sorry, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, surely that can't be right. I mean, going on a holiday, that is pure joy leaving the cares and worries behind. But facing a trial, James is saying to consider that pure joy, how can that be? I mean, the reality is that generally we do not welcome trials in our life. Is there anyone here who, who loves to have trials in their life? No. <laughs> no, we don't welcome them, do we? And in fact, uh, when we do have trials, we want them over as quickly as possible. In fact, sometimes when we face trials, we tend to think that our life has gone wrong. We think we've gone off track. Perhaps we are sinning. Perhaps we're disobeying God. Perhaps we have missed God's direction for our life. Now, that occasionally can be the case, but James actually shows that that is not the usual case as to why we have trials. Because he says this, he says, whenever you face, whenever, he doesn't say the one time in your life you are going to face a trial. He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So what James is saying is that trials are a normal part of our life. And we've just been through and still are going through a huge trial for the whole world, COVID-19. And it's been a huge trial in many ways to health. Um, the social issues have been enormous and the economic challenge has been huge. And let's face it, if you're a conspiracy theorist and an anti-vaxxer, um, then COVID's still upsetting you. Uh, no one has escaped. But let's set COVID aside for a moment. Many of us have gone through all kinds of trials regardless of COVID. And pre-COVID, when it wasn't even thought of, you know, we have spent years going through all kinds of different trials. People have faced griefs of many kinds. It might be job loss. It might be financial problems, relationship breakdowns relationship tensions, uh, illness, uh, accidents, bereavement where we've lost people close to us. It might be that people have gone through study issues, uh, mental health issues, and we could go on and on and on listing all the different types of trials uh, that we might face in our life. But the question is... Why does James say to consider it pure joy when we face the trials of life? Well, can I first have a look at what James is not saying? 
He isn't saying to actually enjoy the trial, in in, in essence, the substance of the trial. He's not saying that. He's not telling us to pretend and, and, and he's not commanding us to like put on a happy face and pretend that the trial's not real. He's not saying if you fall off a ladder and you break your leg and the bone's sticking out and you're writhing in agony to say, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to make sure this happens every month. I'm having a fun time. He's not saying anything unrealistic like that. Because suffering in itself, the very substance of it, is not good. But what is good is what God can do in the midst of the trial in the midst of the suffering. That's what James is getting at here. And the readers of James' letter, because they'd been scattered, uh, they would have been having some good times and possibly some difficulties as well. They may have been facing uh, poverty, injustice, persecution, conflict, sickness, Uh, bereavement and and griefs of many kinds. And James is not saying to his readers that they should go looking for hard times because these things are not good in themselves. We aren't deliberately to seek to make our life hard. That's not what James is saying. Don't go looking for trials. So we come back to the question, why consider it pure joy in those challenging times of life? And we find the answer in verses 3 and 4. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So there is a progression here. Trials test our faith. And the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And the finished work of perseverance is maturity and completeness of character. That we're not lacking anything in our Christian character. You see, to be mature, to be complete in character, but maybe we could say having it all together, is a very desirable outcome for us. So anything that contributes to that, we can count as pure joy. Now, maturity, I'm going to talk about why is maturity so desirable. Maturity is desirable for us as Christians. We'll talk about that in a moment. But maturity is desirable in nature and in just so many different ways. Um, We've got uh, and have had over the past a number of uh, dogs. And usually you get them as little puppy dogs, these tiny little, you know, fluffy fur balls. And they're so cute and lovely. But I can tell you something, uh, I don't like that time. Because those little cute fluffy fur balls, they're terrible inside because they make a mess everywhere. They chew up the wooden tables on your legs. They try and scratch the couch. They want to destroy things. They eat your thongs and your shoes that you leave at the back door. I love dogs when they are two years old. 
I'd rather have a dog when they're two years old, when they're fully mature, and they can come inside and just be well-behaved and not cause you any trouble. You see, maturity in dogs is good. We got um, some little silky bantam, you know, little chickens. Uh, my daughter Sarah had always wanted them, and some years ago we got three, and they're tiny little ones like this. And um, we took them home, but I didn't know that it took seven to nine months before they mature and start laying eggs. So, so maturity in chooks is a really good thing. We planted four years ago when we moved into our house some fruit trees and they were, say, that high. And after four years, they're that high. <laughs> and I just want those things to mature. I'm a terrible gardener, by the way. But, but I don't want five bits of fruit on my trees. I want them to be huge and to be full of luscious, succulent fruit that I can enjoy. Again, maturity in fruit trees and maturity for a farmer in the crop is a really good thing. Friends, if you take a soldier and you put a uniform on the soldier and you say, now you go off and do some soldiering, they don't know what to do. You've got to put them into boot camp and mature them a little, teach them what it's about. A police officer, you don't give a, a new recruit a uniform and say, now go out and do some policing. They wouldn't have a clue what to do. They wouldn't know where to start. They need to go to the academy and in a sense be matured and trained and taught what to do. And then they're let out on the beat. The new recruit, out they go. The, the, the new, um, what, what's it called when they finish their training anyway? There they are, they're, they're let go. And uh, the idea is that they get some experience and they're matured and then they can be promoted and they can be over people and start to give orders. Maturity in, in every essence is something to be desired. How many of you know, parents, that your beautiful little one-year-old, you don't want them to be your one-year-old forever? You want them to grow up. Well, Christian maturity... It does some amazing things for us and it should be desired, desired because what happens is when we mature, we stop being concerned solely with our own needs and we become concerned for God's will and his mission. We become concerned for other people. We start to, to move beyond, hey, this Christianity, it's just all about me to actually starting to see, no, it's actually all about God and what God wants. And church isn't just all about me and me coming to church to have a good time. Church is coming to have a look at everybody out there who's around me. How can I help them? And how can I input into their life and help them in their time of need? When we mature as Christians, we stop being yo-yo Christians. You know, where, where one day circumstances are bad and we're way down here and then the next day good things happen and then suddenly we're elated and we go through life. You know, one week we're down, the next week we're up. Christian maturity brings us to a place where we level out. And regardless of whether circumstances are good or bad, we're not up, we're not down, we sort of go along on a level and that is a very good thing because it's great when you might be up here but nobody wants to be down there. So it's a great thing when we can level out 
And then as life becomes difficult, it doesn't floor us all the time, but we can just keep going along like that. Also, as we mature as Christians, we grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And these are good things to desire. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Who doesn't want to have those things in their life? And that's something that Christian maturity develops in our life. We become more and more like the character of Jesus. That's the ongoing work that the Holy Spirit is doing uh, in our life. And it's a really desirable thing. But how do we mature through perseverance? Let's just have a, a brief look at that. Perseverance matures us through the trials of life, because we learn how to cope. I can cope with things happening in my life now, some things that uh, 10 years ago I couldn't cope with. 20 years ago would just wipe me out, and now I can just cope with them because I've persevered. Perseverance has taught me. Perseverance, through perseverance, we learn to pray. We learn to seek God. And we learn to trust God so that when the difficulties come, it doesn't sideline us, it doesn't wipe us out. We can still focus on other people and God's mission besides ourselves. So God matures us through trials, even though they may be painful or uncomfortable. In the same way that a parent will mature a child. Um, how many of you know, parents, that sometimes our children just don't want to go to school? Sometimes they might like to stay at home. Or maybe if you're homeschooling, sometimes the child might want to stay in bed a bit longer and not come to the, the table wherever you are teaching them. How many of you know that sometimes some um, children don't want to do homework? We had two children who loved doing homework and one it was like World War Three every time we tried to uh, get that one to do homework. But we make them, don't we? They have to persevere because otherwise they're not going to mature in their learning and they're not going to become well-rounded, responsible adult people. How many of you know that uh, children don't always want to do their music lessons? And sometimes they just don't want to sit there and do their scales. It's boring and it's tedious. But we make them because if they're going to be musicians that we want to listen to, they have to go through the time of trial. And, and thankfully to the Lord, we've got wonderful musicians who do an awesome job, but they have been through the trial. They have persevered in their learning and we can be very, very grateful for them. Perseverance brings us through to maturity. Imagine the surgeon who's repairing, repairing somebody's heart. They have been through trial and testing and perseverance to come to that stage of what they can do. If I'm lying on the operating theatre and I say to the surgeon just before heart surgery, oh, how many times have you done this? And, and the surgeon says, oh, it's my first time, but don't worry, we'll give it a good go. 
I'd be hopping off the table. But if the surgeon says, oh, no, I've done this 20 times, and we've been through a lot of trial and a lot of perseverance, and we're getting some really good results, then I'd feel confident and I'd say, okay, let's go and do this. And perseverance grows our Christian character and it is desirable. We mature, we, we level out, we become uh, full of the Holy Spirit and, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and we have a heart for God's mission and a heart for other people. And have a look at the ultimate goal. We read about it in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We are to finish well, not to go down under pressure, not to walk away from the Lord or to ditch our faith so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, and we read about it in 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Friends, we want to finish the race. And Christian maturity takes us right through. So in the time of trial, we do not fall away. My heart has been broken to see people who walk with the Lord and then in the time of trial, they have ditched their faith and they have walked away. Because the ultimate goal, the prize that awaits us is to spend an eternity with the Lord. And I can share with you, I've been through times in my life so trying that I've almost given up myself and almost turned from the Lord. But friends, the one thing that has kept me, deep down I've always come back to it and I've said to the Lord, Lord, I can't walk away from you because I want to spend eternity with you. Not just eternity to have a, you know, a fun, happy time in this wonderful new heaven and new earth, though as good as that will be, but I want to spend eternity with the Lord. It's about him. If we embrace the trials, if we persevere, and if we grow to maturity, then the ultimate prize for us, we, we spend an eternity with the Lord. And don't let go of that. And young people, you might be in your teenage years and you might think, oh, I've got 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years before I die and go and be with the Lord. But do not ever, ever let go of the fact that one day you will die and you do need to go and be with the Lord. Don't ever lose sight of that and give up in the time of trial. Do not ditch your faith. Do not go chasing after pleasures and, and worldly pleasures and think, oh, that's better. Do not ditch your faith. And young people, can I say this to you? You do not even know that tomorrow you might die in a car accident 
and, and the death that you thought was 80 years away happens to you tomorrow. I'm not wishing anything bad on you, please understand that. But I'm just saying we should never be arrogant about life. And young people, you're well and mature enough and with it enough to understand what I'm saying here today. There's this incredible story. Can I share it with you? Um, it's a story behind that amazing hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, the story belongs to a guy called Horatio Spafford and he lived a long time ago, 1828 through to 1888. And much like Job in the Bible, he placed his trust in God during his life's prosperity, but also during its calamities. A devout Christian who had immersed himself in scripture and for many years of his life was joyous. He was a prominent Chicago lawyer whose business was thriving. He owned several properties throughout the city he and his beloved wife had four beautiful daughters and one son. Life was more than good. It was blessed. By faith, no matter how great, but sorry, but faith, no matter how great, does not spare us from adversity. And just as Horatio hit the pinnacle of his profession and financial success, things began to change. It began with the tragic loss of their son. And not long thereafter, the great Chicago fire destroyed nearly every real estate investment that Horatio owned. And just a few years later, in 1873, Horatio decided to treat his wife and daughters to a much-needed escape from the turmoil, and he sent them on a boat trip to Europe with plans to join them shortly after wrapping up some business in Chicago. Sometime later, he received a dreadful telegram from his wife, saved alone. It bore the excruciating news that the family ship had been wrecked and all four of his daughters had perished. Horatio was on his way to meet his heartbroken wife in Europe. And he was passing over the same sea, the same ocean that had claimed the lives of his remaining children. It was then that he put his pen to paper and the timeless hymn was born and it begins with these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The famous hymn composer Philip Bliss was so moved when he found out about Horatio's words that he composed a tune to accompany the words and the song was published in 1876. It's incredible to think that such encouraging and uplifting words, and it's, a, it's an uplifting song to sing, but, but imagine that those words were born from the depths of such unimaginable sorrow. And it's an example of truly inspiring faith and trust in the Lord. 
And it goes to show the power of God in our life to overcome even in the darkest of times. Now, Horatio went through just, you know, the depths of grief. You read his story, it affected his life. But nonetheless, even in the darkest of times, there was faith and there was hope and there was strength for him in that time of calamity. And I don't know whether this is the right word, but to me, there is something beautiful in what happened there that in the midst of that death, that God was able to move in that man's life in such a way that he could write that hymn. In the beauty and power of God in our life, in the midst of the trials, when the walls all around us come tumbling down, we are able to cry out, it is well with my soul. Friends, that is where God is taking us to maturity, to a place where no matter what comes, we are still there safe in the hands of God for eternity. And that's why James says, if trials are going to bring us to that place, then consider it pure joy. Let's look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Friends, when we're going through the time of trial, to be able to consider it pure joy, we need the wisdom of God. Wisdom, godly wisdom, gives us the capacity to understand the world in the light of God's word and his purposes and his promises. Wisdom enables us to see God's perspective. And so if we're going through the time of trial, we need to ask God for his wisdom. And the word he says, God gives generously. He gives generously of his wisdom to us. God is a generous God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Matthew 7.11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is generous and God blesses us materially. He gives us what we need and spiritually God gives to us abundantly. And to ask God for godly wisdom is good and God gives it generously. Let's have a look at that again. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. 
and it will be given to you. If we ask for wisdom, then God gives to us, to all of us. There aren't platinum frequent flyers who get preferential treatment. God will give to all of us without finding fault if we are willing to ask him for wisdom. We need to ask God for wisdom to serve him in the time of trial. And if we ask him that, then God will generously, generously give us his perspective and his worldview. You know, even if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, trials can disorient us. You know, because suddenly in a day, something can happen or circumstances can change and, and we're just not. We're, whoa, you know, what's happening, we say? What's going on here? And how do I cope with this? It happens to all of us. doesn't matter if we've been walking the Lord for 40 or 50 years. When the trial suddenly hits, whoa, it just hits us. It's like a wave coming upon us and we can be disoriented and think, what is going on here? But the mature Christian will ask God for wisdom. Ask God, Lord, show me what you are doing. Show me what is going on and show me how I can endure and go through this situation in victory. Verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and, and unstable in all they do. This may sound harsh, but God is just simply saying that we should trust him for he is trustworthy. Don't trust him and then look elsewhere for answers. It's like the person who, who asks God for strength in life but then goes to the alcohol cupboard and drinks alcohol so that it can top them up a little bit and help them through. Or the person who asks God for, for help in a financial bind and, and, and we ask God to provide for us and then we go gambling to see if we can win money to solve our problem. That's unstable. God's, and James is saying here that, that God doesn't want us to be unstable. If we're going to ask God for help, trust God for that help. And remember that when you ask God for wisdom in the time of trial, we may not suddenly feel wise. <laughs> I've done this, I've prayed to God and sought him for wisdom and I don't necessarily all the time think, oh yeah, now, you know, you don't just feel wise. But what happens is God decides our, or guides our decision making. God helps us as we go through that trial. And these, just these last few verses we'll have a look at because it's a little bit strange in a way that James pops this in here. But verses 9 through to 11, he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business." 
James is saying there that both the rich and the poor should trust God. The poor believer is spiritually exalted in Christ and they need to get a hold of that because poor people often get put down in life and oppressed and looked down upon. But they can be uh, rejoicing because in Christ they are exalted. And the rich person who might think, oh, well, aren't I wonderful and I've got everything, they need to be humble because ultimately they will die. And they too need God. Queen Elizabeth, um, I, I think she owns six palaces, six residences, um, whether by, you know, while she's the queen, she's allowed to be in them, and some she actually owns owns through, you know, uh, inheriting them. And, and places like, you know, Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and, and Balmoral Castle and Sandringham Estate. And I believe that at least two of those have got over a thousand rooms. A thousand rooms. I wonder whether Queen Lizzie, when she goes to those places, actually ever gets to see most of the rooms. Probably only lives in just a few of them. But compare Queen Elizabeth to a poor person who lives in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. When the ultimate trial of life comes to the queen or to that poor person and the ultimate trial of life is death, when the ultimate trial comes, both Queen Elizabeth, both the rich person and the poorest of people, they both equally need Jesus. All the castles in the world aren't going to count for anything when your time of death comes. Prince Philip is there in hospital, 99, and if he passes away, it won't help one bit all the castles that he might have. The rich and the poor, we equally need to have Christ when we face that ultimate trial in life. Are you going through trials today? I'd be almost absolutely certain that there are just so many trials going on here in our lives. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord for help, for comfort. Reach out to one another so that in the Lord we can help each other. Don't go through it alone. But God is doing a good work in you. God has not forsaken you in the time of trial. He's doing a good work in you and ultimately he's taking you into an eternity with him. But if you're going through trials, count it pure joy if the trials lead you to Jesus. Let's pray.